Hello and welcome to Hallelujah Monkeys for July 17th. My name is Dylan Flynn. My name is Trevor Ickrath. It's partially for July 17th. Also kind of for July 10th. Yeah. Because we had a we had, we had a we had a bit of a tumultuous week. This is a troubled episode, Trevor. This is like a little bit. It's gonna it's kind of the Frankenstein monster of uh, the Halloween Monkeys canon so far, <laughs> in that it's very stitched together. Yeah, for sure. You're gonna hear a moment where where suddenly, uh, like magic, we're gonna jump back in time. I think this part, as you're listening, was recorded. You know, just moments before you hearing it, before me editing it, and then we're gonna get all the way through the news, and then once we move into the roundtable. We're going to go back in time. Yeah, we're going to cover last week's news, this week's news, uh, and then we're going to get into our discussion of uh, the girls' interview tapes, so that'll be fun. And then we'll probably come back in at the end, because I think the original ending to this episode was like, I don't know, whatever whatever we talked about was like, uh, uh, okay, that's Hallelujah Monkeys for this week. Donald Trump Jr. will never be ensnared with collusion with the Russians. <laughs> I'm Dylan Flynn. It's so long ago, I can barely remember those days. <laughs> So we'll probably jump back in there at the end. Right, but for that, let's talk about the news. It's all good news now. You know, in spite of, once again, us basically taking uh, a week off, there's not that much to report on, Trevor. I mean, there's one huge thing to report on, of course, but uh, let's look at the at the kind of satellite, tertiary, uh, peripheral well, I, I, gorillas. Uh, by the huge thing, I'm sure you mean this little uh, snippet of... Uh... Damon working in the studio on humans we got uh, about a week ago. I mean, you know, earth chatter. Really, earth chatter. really like super insightful kind of footage. It's uh, him. I think you see him maybe play around with, I don't know, something, but then he spends a good 30 seconds just making a cup of tea and then the video is over. Yeah. It's sort of like, oh, we're going to get a look inside of Damon making humans. And then they, it's sort of a joke. They sort of trolled you. You get to watch him make. I mean, look, if you want to go in freeze frame and step by step through it. Uh, there's certainly some office porn. You get to see like what Damon's workspace kind of looks like, and uh, you get to see a couple of frames of him tapping away at a at a uh, typewriter. But mostly, this is just just about the tea. Looks like a good cup of tea, though. To his credit, uh, I imagine our boy can make a fine cuppa. No, it else looks good. Noodles mocap bottle looks really sick. I really I agree with that. You. Was from uh, we saw that from the. Uh, what we're assuming is the strobe light video. Yeah, Jamie Hewlett lately has been playing a little coy about that. Some Somebody was like, when's strobe light video coming out? And he's like, well, it'll be out when it's ready. I mean, you don't want me to finish it, or you don't want me to put it out before it's done, right? And then he added, uh, and who said it was strobe light? Out of body, fingers crossed. Oh, still hope. Still hope. <laughs> Why not? Why not? Don't let the dream die. <sighs> uh, but yeah, Noodles Mocap model looks really good. Looks like a cheetah. Yeah, she's wearing her little cheetah outfit. Although I thought uh, Jaguar was supposed to be the corporate sponsor. Hmm, that's a good point. That's a very good point, Trevor. Yeah. This is why we pay you those big Patreon bucks for insight like that. I don't know. Yeah, it looks good. I'm excited to see the video. I mean, I want to. I want to wait until it's done. You know. I can't wait. Yeah. Maybe we'll go frame by frame through the video. <laughs> I'm thinking two parter for that one. Yeah, and then Trevor, we can't we can't get through an episode without nodding to our corporate overlord. So let's uh, let's talk about Chelsea football. Let's go back Trevor. to uh, let's go let's get some football and let's talk about sports. Hey, I, I'm not like uh, Elvis Costello and the attractions. I do want to go to Chelsea. I don't know, Trevor. <laughs> they keep releasing little clips of Tootie and David Luiz chatting together. Nice little bromance going on. So the first one they put out, uh, I believe David taught 2D how to salsa dance, and 2D mentioned that David's hair makes him look like a cartoon character. 
And then the second one was like this boring, like public access interview where he was just like, when you got the ball, do you like to pass the ball or do you like to hold on to the ball? And he's like, oh, sometimes I pass it. <laughs> it's riveting. One, I'm wary of gorillas interacting with anybody whose hair makes them look like a cartoon character after the whole daily debacle. Oh, yeah. Two, I, you're joking, but I really did appreciate hearing more about how he prefers to play the game. Really? That was that was, that was was an improvement over the... I could have sworn he was going to be a passer kind of guy. Oh, yeah, that's true. <laughs> Just looking at him. Just looking at him. Okay, Trevor, there's actually important gorilla shit happening. You know, it ha- some happened yesterday, some will happen today when this comes out. Let's just try to jump in and talk about what we've got so far at the moment that we record this. Are you talking about what we've seen on the North American Humans Tour so far? That's right. As we record this, we've got five dates. Here's what I want to do, Trevor. I just want to I want to say the date, the, the, the notable new songs, and then I want a hot take from you after I name each song. Okay? Gotcha, yes, please. After each song or each date? Let's do it by date. You want to do it? Okay, okay, okay. We can do it by date. Other than the songs we mentioned, these these set lists are what you would probably imagine. Right. If you've been keeping up with the set lists uh, through the tour so far and also the other shows they've done, it's pretty standard fare. Mostly humans and some cool stuff thrown in here and there. Okay, so we started with Chicago, Trevor. Chi-Town. We got Broken. We got The Power featuring Little Sims and Clint Eastwood featuring Dell. So immediately, you know, Clint Eastwood featuring Dell, that's a big moment. The second time it's happened this phase. And the first time during a tour. What do you think is going on there? Why didn't Dell play with the band on, on the Plastic Beach tour? Why didn't he play? Why hasn't he played with them until now? Well, I, I've heard a lot of rumors that said uh, Dell and Damon have never met before. What's going on there? There's got to be a reason. They flew people all over the country. I think I've heard he doesn't like flying. Interesting. I mean, apologies to Del the Punky Homo Sabian if he actually loves getting on planes, but I've, I think I've heard that he's afraid of flying. No, I think you're I think you're right. I remember hearing something like that, too. I also saw on Twitter that there are going to be three uh, Deltron 3030 dates this year with, with Dan and Kid Koala and Del together uh, in, like, really random-ass places. Like, Jackson Hole is getting one. It's really odd. Anywhere that Del could just ride his bike to. Uh, what about we got the power with Little Sims? That's interesting. I guess that doesn't... I'm not super interested in that. Like, okay, like, what did she do? Do you know what she did? Uh, I think she wrote a verse. I think she wrote a verse that she did where Jenny Beth would normally do her part. I mean, yeah, cool. I really like that they're kind of subbing in collaborators uh, for ones that they don't have on hand. I'd, I'd probably rather see that in most cases than the screens. I think I might have said that already, but... It, no, I, I think that that's exactly how I feel. I think... Yeah. As, no, whoever you have in the building, make the most use out of them. You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, we saw that at uh, the Demon Days Festival, too, with uh, Booty Brown taking over uh, for most staff on Styla. That was really cool. I, I love that kind of stuff. Mix it up, Damon. I mean, as much as, as, much as the giant video big brother faces of the collaborators who aren't present are kind of a trademark of gorillas, I think... I think in most occasions, we would probably rather see a live performance of a, of a random collaborator, right? There are some where it works very well, I think, but it's really just like an aesthetic thing, like Charger, like Grace Jones up on that screen. Fucking cool. Absolutely. Like seeing uh, Jenny Beth up on a screen wouldn't really do too much for me. No, I agree. It's just I not agree. that kind of performance. Let's talk about the next date on the tour, which is Toronto. We didn't talk about the fact that they played Broken, which is uh, one of the very few Plastic Beach songs we've gotten on the tour so far. That's true. That's true. Broken being uh, one of the Plastic Beach uh, debuts. You know, it's a, it's a, I think when we talk about this on the Lost content, you pointed out that this is a kind of slow song overload at this point. 
Yeah, this was um, also a problem I had when uh, I saw Blur when they were touring behind uh, Magic Whip. Just a lot of low-energy stuff, and I loved hearing those songs. This set, Trevor, would have had uh, El Manana, Busted in Blue, Tomorrow Comes Today, and Broken, which is a... a it's a lot of... Lotta, okay, I can sit down for this song. I like all of those songs. I like all of those songs. It's of just a, it's a very different experience in a live setting, a down tempo kind of thing. I don't know. Yeah, it's a little heavy on the on this slow stuff. I agree. Right, but they uh, played some cool up tempo stuff at Toronto, right? They sure did. Toronto saw the debut of nineteen two thousand on the Humans tour, featuring Kilo Kish. That's pretty cool. Do, did she just do Miho Hatari's part? I think she did Miho's bit. I you know. The fandom has not been super forthcoming with the bootlegs just yet, so I haven't had a chance to to hunt this down. But uh, I, any any place you can find for Kilo Kish to do anything on a Gorillaz for Life performance, I'm all for. Of course, yeah, she's been rocking it this entire phase, definitely an MVP. But uh, 19 2000, honestly, not really super into the uh, idea of seeing that one live. I saw them do it for the Plastic Beach shows, and it's just kind of one of those like studio songs that just. I have this problem with a couple Gorilla songs. It just sounds kind of janky when you perform it live as like a big band. It does. The parts sound a little bit more like they don't congeal quite as well. Yeah, live. it's very discordant. Yeah. But I would be interested to see if they've got the humans doing anything on there. That's one thing is that like I'm willing to hear anything on this tour because they're making such good use of that giant vocal chorus. Um, and Dylan, with all the stuff Damon Albarn's been pulling out lately, you could hear anything. That's true. It's kind of wacky. In fact, Boston, I think, might be the most exciting set list we've gotten so far. Definitely. Uh, that saw M1A1 played for the first time since 2002. That saw ticker tape with Carly Simon, the Wild. immortal Carly Simon, and it saw the live debut of Revolving Doors. Not only the live debut of Revolving Doors, I believe the live debut of any fall song played in its entirety, right? I yes. think they teased a little bit of Pink Plastic Bags. Um, yeah, back on the Chicago date. Right? This is the first time they've played a song from the fall live. Super cool, and I did get to hear a, a snippet of this from somebody's Instagram, and, and the humans were, were singing the chorus, and it was sounding really cool. I definitely would not mind seeing some fall material pop up in these set lists. Oh, I totally agree. I mean, I guess if we were going to see anything on our date at the forum, maybe we would hear, like, California and the Slipping of the Sun. If you're going to try to keep it location-centered, because, you know, Boston, Revolving Doors, that makes some sense. Oh, that's so cool, thinking that this is his first Girls American tour since being at those places where he wrote those songs. That's really neat. I didn't even consider that. Let's talk about the fact that they played M1A1. They opened the show with that, right? That's kind of wild. And they've continued to open their sets with it, I believe, since then. I think maybe they didn't in one, but they did in the other two or something like that. Anyone who's heard our uh, second emergency episode knows I'm not really the biggest fan of M1A1. And I'm a pretty big M1A1 fan. You're a pretty big fan of M1A1. It'd be cool to see him open with it live. It, because of the fact that it was used as an opener on the Phase 1 tour? I, think I mean, that yeah, that's... classic Phase 1 gorilla shit we're talking about. I, you know what I've kind of realized, Trevor? I think part of the reason why I love M1A1 as much as I do is that I associate it with that little bit of it that would play every time I would go to the Phase 1 Kong Studios. Yeah, you really can't beat that kind of Pavlovian response. For sure, yeah. Uh, so, I don't know. I'm excited if they continue opening with it. I'm excited to see it. But more more so, I'm just excited to see, like, what else he's going to pull out of the bag of tricks, you know. Between... I would love to see Ticker Tape at our at our show. That'd be awesome. I mean, it looks That'd like... That'd be, we'll... like, a top five one I'd want to see, I think. Then we went to Philadelphia. Now, this was not quite as uh, as 
much of a solid date as uh, as Boston because there were no new debuts. I guess notable about that uh, show, Trevor, was that rain and lightning uh, delayed the the main set. Yeah, you know who I heard that from? Who'd you hear from? My mom, because she went to this show. That's so amazing. So yeah. Uh, Explain. Now, I know your mom has been to both of the shows that you went to with her, right? Yeah, my mom really likes gorillas. Uh, she She's like, she's into the idea of being like kind of like hip, so she would kind of take some, like, take the cool bands I would listen to as a teenager and like go like, oh, I'm into these too. I'm going to go to some shows. That's both, you know, maybe a little bit embarrassing, but very sweet. Totally, yeah. But uh, yeah, she's a big girls fan. She's seen them live three times, which I think is three times more than you've seen them doing. So that's maybe true. She, Bigger fan than me. Maybe she should be doing this podcast. The question is: Was it, were you surprised at all to hear that she continued the live gorillas experience without having you there to go with the show? No, definitely not. Definitely not. I'm I'm glad to hear that your mom is a gorillas fan. That's very and cool. she she really enjoyed the show. Uh, according to her, they didn't play Charger and they didn't play uh, She's My Caller because they got rained out. Yeah, that's a little bit of a bummer, but I mean, you know, it's yeah. notable notable in its own way, I suppose. Yeah, but like missing missing Charger, like... That is rough. Yeah, she was bummed about that one. Uh, what about Quebec? Quebec was the most recent show as of this recording, and uh, it, was, it was kind of a classic Humans Tour set list, except, finally, we have the full live debut in Phase 4 of On Melancholy Hill. He played the whole thing? Yeah, he played it for real, he sang it. Finally, Damon. Only the only your third fucking most streamed song on Spotify at all. Do you think he just doesn't know because it didn't do anything as a single? It's totally possible. He it doesn't is totally keep up possible. With it? You know, aside from his aside from his iPad, he's a total technophobe, right? Not not really a technophobe, but like he's a little behind. You know, like verging on Ludditism, sort of. A little bit, little bit. Slide the light, right? I know. Uh, here, that's all. That's all the 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 tunes that have been the surprise tunes that have been pulled out. But I did want to mention that two songs have been played at Soundcheck, uh, which so far has been, has been a pretty good. Yeah, Gravity. Uh, that has not been played at Soundcheck, uh, which so far have been a pretty good predictor of you know what might what might fall out of the bag of tricks uh, at a future date. So let's just briefly mention that uh, several shows they've warmed up with uh, to binge. Nice. Using, I believe, a, a, a recording of the Little Dragon stuff. Really interesting. I think so. I mean, get like get like Kaliuchis on that song or something. Sure, or Kalila or something. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and then uh, spitting out the demons, spitting Which out the is demons. Sick. Like, oh, imagine, I hope we get it. Imagine if they start opening shows with that, like Damon did uh, for his solo solo shows. Hell yeah, that would be so cool. I'm all about it. I, do you have a most wanted right now? I think my most wanted gorilla song that I'd like to see make an appearance on this tour is uh, is Every Planet We Reach is Dead. Oh my god. It's only ever been played at both of the Demon Days residencies. It's never been played outside of them, so I think it'd be really cool to dust it off for this tour. The thing is, Ike Turner walking out and like sitting down at the piano and stuff is such a big moment in the live performance of the song. I would, I'd really love to see how they are able to kind of keep that sense of drama even without that whole like this is it moment what song would i most like to see on the tour slow country would be really cool i think yeah i'm wondering why we haven't seen that crop up in uh, in sound checks yet because uh it was this band knows how to play that song yeah that really really nice version uh from uh that damon live at the ddd dur love that version yeah we're yeah that one's really good i'd love to see uh 
the gorilla span take a spin at that one that'd be a cool one to throw a, a random human collaborator on too while they're definitely yeah yeah jamie principal right sure yeah throw jamie on there for sure uh okay okay so are you do you have your time traveling approved wardrobe strapped on and are there no nothing's hanging off of your body that could be sucked away from you as you travel through this time tunnel trevor i am wearing the exact same clothes that i was wearing a week ago oh good then that means you probably won't be ripped in half as we as we fling ourselves back to last week well no this this way i can kill my past self and nobody will notice <laughs> you just step right in and make a yeah. killing by betting on i don't know what you're gonna bet on whether donald trump jr was colluding with the russians or whatever all right here we go <laughs> you heard it here first trevor ickrath billionaire betting on politics here we go in into the past and the round table this is evolution if you're old bald or in the way We'll push you over. <laughs> Have you ever seen a fully grown naked man grasping his broadsword? <laughs> okay, Trevor, this week we're getting into some some, some some obscurities, let's say, some paraphernalia. Yeah, we're really fine. It feels like we're really finally digging into some serious gorillas lore, too. This week we're going to be looking at the two gorillas interview promotional CDs. Like, what a weird format that certainly does not exist anymore. But it is a format that serves this band so well. Oh, absolutely. This is this is the perfect showcase for in-character wackiness and hijinks, and also sometimes for really insightful musical commentary, as we'll as we'll see. Uh so how this worked, Trevor, so the the first one is called the Apex Tapes, and the second one is called We Are the Dury. Um and how this worked was if you were the program director of a radio station and you wanted to do a little something special for the new gorilla single that came out, you could edit together like a fake interview using this CD because it doesn't have uh, the DJ's questions. It just has the band's answers. I will say I was aware of how that, how, why I've, how it was formatted to work this way. I can't imagine that not sounding stilted as hell. Oh, it would sound like garbage, but hey, it's the radio. How good? It's free. Yeah, what do you want? Yeah, of course. <laughs> uh, especially because, like, well, I mean, and, you know, the Apex tapes especially, they, like, insert a gap where you would say your question, but yeah. the, the gap is at the end of the track, which is really weird, so you'd have to kind of, I don't, I don't know, it's a headache, in my opinion. I'm sure at some point for some kind of Patreon or Kickstarter uh, stretch goal, we will record our own fictional interview with the band using these tapes. But. <laughs> yeah, we'll try to take them out of context. And So we're going to start with the Apex tapes, the shorter of the two. This came out in 2001 uh, to to promote the actual album releasing and and the Clint Eastwood single and more. At a glance, Trevor, what did what what did you think of the Apex tapes? This one I really didn't have much fun with. I think I would have had more fun with it if I didn't have to make a show about it. Yeah, but even then, the the project almost feels kind of embryonic at this uh, state. There's not a lot of like a deep uh, explorations of the lore at all. A lot of them are just one one word answers. We don't really learn too much about. Maybe maybe I'm coming into this as like a seasoned gorillas fan and I already know this stuff, so maybe it is more fun if like maybe it is more informative too if you're not as familiar with the band as say two podcast hosts would be. But yeah, just there's not a lot to dig into here. There are a couple of pieces of lore that I wasn't familiar with uh, on revisiting this that were interesting. I'll say that to speak to your embryonic uh, descriptor, the characters in general are are a, a lot more one-dimensional in my opinion. It's sort of like 
Murdoch is a Satanist, 2D is dumb, and Noodle likes karate, <laughs> and Russell struggles to find anything noticeable about his character. <laughs> <laughs> the noodle thing was rough to sit through, too. I think we talked a little bit about uh, Japanese minstrelly on uh, the last episode. Here it is out in full effect. So like, Haruka Kuroda does Noodle's dialogue on this and on We Are the Dury. I think she struggles more than most of the cast. I think that, well, first of all, on Apex Tapes in general, Remy Kabaka sounds real weird to me. So does 2D. Like, Nelson DeFridis, he sounds really like, I have no idea what I'm doing yet. He, he gets very marble-mouthy on this one, especially. Yeah. Phil Phil Cornwell is solid. Immediately. He was immediately like, oh, yeah, I get Murdoch. I am Murdoch. Like, it's like a real testament to his chops here. He is. He puts it on, like, silk pajamas. It's, it's no yep, sweat on point from the word go. <laughs> and in a way, next to Damon Albarn's singing voice, Murdoch Nichols' speaking voice is probably the second most iconic vocal performance in the Gorillas Project. <laughs> it's his band. It's his band. And he's great on this, uh, even, though his, even, though, even though his outlook is a little bit more one-dimensional on this, he's still, he's still a lot of fun. But Haruka Kuroda and Nelson DeFridis in general, I thought, really struggled to keep up. And, and Remy Kabaka, too. He just, he's speaking at a much higher register than we would come to know from Russell uh, in later phases. And a lot, and none of them are really particularly served well by what I assume is the pre-written dialogue, because there just isn't a lot to sell here. So much of this is like just brief one-phrase answers that almost feel like something I would have written if I didn't have time. Here's what here's my take on that. So it is, it's like it's like seventy some odd tracks, and they're all like twelve seconds long. Yep. Uh, so there's nothing too meaty here, but it does definitely seem like Cass Brown, who I'm assuming wrote this this teleplay, for lack of a better word or this radio play, for lack of a better word, was more interested in making a lot, dropping a lot of names and making a lot of obscure pop culture references. Oh my god, there are, I have no idea what, like, I'm a very well-cultured person, I like to consider myself very well-cultured, but I have no idea what they're talking about. Well, guess who, guess who paused every time a name was dropped and dutifully Wikipedia'd them? God fucking bless you. Now I know why it took you like two hours to get through this one. <laughs> yeah, this one was rough for me. I didn't do nearly as much on Dury because Dury, I think you can talk about in a different way. There's this one part where they're like, stupid grooves are big on the record. Is stupid the new clever when it comes to music? And Russell says, stupid is the new clever. Like Tom York was the new Marty Feldman. Now I know who Tom York is, but like... That's a nonsense sentence to like ninety percent of people, probably. Right? That's probably that's probably my favorite reference on the album. But we'll get to it. Let's just <laughs> let's just start in on the Apex tapes. I don't think we're gonna like go track by track, obviously, because of the nature of of this collection, right? But I do just want to grab things that are interesting as we move through the the interview. Okay. Yep. Sure. Totally. Uh, I wanted to start with Murdoch's alternate names for gorillas. Those are all fun, especially um. They're he, all good. He throws out Satan's scrotum. Yep. Thor's roar. Solid. And his and my personal favorite number of the beats, which I believe would the become number like a, of the beats. Number of the beats, which I think would become a um, recurring gorillas kind of phrase throughout phase one right they put that on some stickers or something maybe like that yeah that's a hot name that that's could you imagine what would our podcast be called if it was called the number of the beats would we be like the six 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 cast or something i don't know be pretty sick so they're still pushing the we are here to challenge manufactured pop music narrative which today today trevor doesn't that seem like such a quaint goal for a gorillas album like Imagine if the next Gorillaz album was like, we hate American Idol, like after they've taken on the giants of thermonuclear war and 
economic and ecological collapse. And it, it, it does seem like sort of cute and very small scale. It is definitely wild to see how this band has grown in leaps and bounds, not in, just in terms of quality of content they're producing, but in terms of ambition and really what the project means to the people who are creating it themselves. Yeah, the themes, you know, and, yeah. and all that. They've yeah. grown just just like the music has grown. Themes, man. Uh I want to talk. I do. I do want to have a conversation with you about Murdoch calling Tootie a little faggot on this uh, interview tape. Yeah, how disappointing, right? That was a little bit disappointing. I mean, look, in character-wise, I mean, Murdoch's a pretty wretched human being. He's been guilty of kidnapping and torture in his day. But I just think in the tone of the project, it bummed me out to hear this. Uh, he almost calls him it again, too, in We Are the Dury. Did you notice in, that? In We Are the Dury, but he stopped short. Like, is that progress? Is that what we're hearing? Well, you know, now he's now he's both a feminist and an environmentalist. So he's... <laughs> Yeah, he certainly wouldn't be doing that today. Yeah, no. I don't know. Yeah, just to, while I don't think it's necessarily out of character for Phase 1 Murdoch, it feels out of step with the tone of gorillas. To Definitely, me. yeah. It's, it always seems like the Brits have been a couple of steps behind on homophobia is funny. There's something about, like, casual lad-based homophobia. Girls have milked a bit of that humor over the years back in their early days, but I, I don't think it has been a very large part of the project. But this definitely jumped out to me like a, that's weird, that's weird. It's kind of like, uh, it's kind of like listening to, like, hip-hop uh, back from, like, the 90s when that kind of language also played, like, a... A larger role, like you don't really see rappers uh, throwing out homophobic insults too much anymore. To the point where, when they do, it's kind of like a like a whoa moment. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, to the point that when they do, that somebody's going to write a think piece about it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> did Did you get the sense, Trevor, that at this point when this was recorded, it wasn't necessarily locked down whether or not Gorillas were, were going to do any live performances? They did seem to be covering their tracks here by saying that no one was interested in booking them after um, a riot broke out at their first gig at the Roundhouse. So, yeah, maybe there is uh, some truth to that. This will be a theme on both of these interview tapes where they talk about a Gorillas live experience uh, plans that, that change by the time the phase is said and done. Yeah, they start talking about it again uh, in We Are the Dirty, so we'll talk about that when we talk about that. Russell and Noodle have a really great exchange about boy bands where... Russell says, if you pay peanuts, you get monkeys, and if you pay top dollar... You get gorillas. You get gorillas. That's a good line. Yeah, there's a bunch of good little quotables to pull from uh, this interview, if nothing else. Here's some lore that, that has no representation on the Gorillas Wiki. So get ready, nerds, to make a new page on the Gorillas Wiki. They make reference to their album being mixed by an in-universe engineer whose name is Todd the Tech. That's one of, I think that's one of the funnier moments, too. Uh, the interviewer asks them how they managed to synthesize all their different sounds and influences, and 2D comes in like, I'll answer this one if you don't mind. And then he just says, we have, see, we have this engineer named Todd, and he puts everything in, into the mixing disc, and then we're done. <laughs> he doesn't understand the process at all. That's great. Now, obviously, that's, not, that's neither Tom Gerling, nor is it Jason Cox. So this is a, this is a real character in the lore of gorillas. Todd. He engineered the first album. <laughs> Somebody go digging. There's got to be something else about Todd somewhere in the supplemental material. Yeah, I mean, he would never show up again, though. Maybe we'll we'll read about him in Rise of the Yogurt. Maybe we've forgotten all Maybe. about him. Maybe. Who, who, who are some other uh, Gorillaz characters uh, we're introduced to here? Does Johnny Bird count? Johnny Bird counts? Johnny Bird's the whole thing. Yeah, uh, 2D, I, I, I kind of wa just wanted to read this uh, verbatim. Would yeah, you go mind? for it. 
All right, so the interviewer asks, uh, under what circumstances was the album recorded? And uh, 2D jumps in and says, well, we recorded the album in Jamaica, and I was on the studio roof recording the vocal for Soundcheck. Which we know is true. Damon did that shit, yeah, right? Yeah, that is based on uh, Damon's actual recording of Soundcheck. And while I was singing, I was looking up at the stars, and this giant vulture that the locals called Johnny Bird swooped down and took me into the mountains and left me there with a Rastafarian medicine man called Wobbly. I stayed there for a week, and he fed me with vegan food and educated me in the ways of Jasalesi the first, but I can't remember a word he said. First of all, it's Selassie. Didn't you go to college and become a Rasta, Trevor? Yeah, I mean... Does Tootie ever mention Rastafarianism again? I don't think so, but Johnny Bird comes up later in the interview with uh, Murdoch saying... Yes, he does. <laughs> Johnny Bird is like this big vulture, you know, with like Cuban heels, man, and he's got like these trousers, you know, and they sort of... <laughs> Lightly flared and nestling gently on top of his casual shoes. Does anybody, has there ever been an official rendering of Johnny Bird? Because he sounds magnificent. Fan artists out there, tweet at us. Draw some Johnny Bird. Maybe Jamie Hewlett will put in, into the uh, still unfinished humans live visuals. Now that is, that's, that's some <laughs> deep gorillas character lore though. Yeah, Johnny Bird. Uh, let's, this is the perfect opportunity, Trevor, for us to talk about the concepts of zombie hip hop and dark pop. Sure. Zombie hip hop or dark pop. I definitely had uh, gorilla stuff tagged in my iTunes library as zombie hip hop and dark pop when I was like 14 years old. Oh my gosh! Me too! We were the same nerd! Yeah, absolutely. It seems a little bit forced, doesn't it? It seems like a, like a, a move that wouldn't necessarily be made in this day and age of being like, we're this whole new... It seems very weird to me. I don't well, know. Well, it's, it's, they're both better than uh, the genres that the journalist asks them about, which are uh, ghetto ghost punk beats and sentient bongo rift simultaneous requiem and eulogy for pop. Did, the, did they expect the DJs to read these fucking questions verbatim? Because I want to read one right now that we'll we'll get to the answer for it later. But okay. I want to get I want to read you. This is the clunkiest question I've ever heard. Okay, are you ready? M one A one is the last track on the album, and it has a voice shouting "Hello, is anyone there?" against an early phrase Howard Devoto esque riff and a distinctly J G Ballard backbeat. How did that all come about? Are you really supposed to? Like, first of all, let me point out, Howard DeVoto, he's the lead singer of the Bug, or uh, the lead guitarist of the Buzzcocks, which is like, okay, I guess, right? Sure. J.G. Uh, Ballard is a fucking writer. He's a novelist. So what does that even mean? One of my favorite interview questions, though, like, you know, the band wrote these interview questions for the people who would be interviewing them to read. So one is, um, 5-4 <laughs> is a great stomping tune with a lyric that says, she killed my daddy, and then she made me kill myself. What's all that about? And then the band corrects, <laughs> then the band is supposed to correct them, saying, no, it's not she killed my daddy, it's she turned my dad on. Why, yeah, feed, <laughs> why have the interviewer get it wrong? Why not just ask, what does she turned my dad on mean? Why? They've like, written you a dumb little skit to perform it, Trevor. It's like, I don't know, there's so much stuff about the Apex tapes that, like, I don't really connect with and just kind of falls flat for me and leaves me scratching my head. The interview questions are definitely one of them. But without them, you're just left with, like, these little brief, like, five-second gorillas quotes that mean nothing in that a are, vacuum. Uh, yeah, totally out of context otherwise, you know yeah. what I mean? Okay, you mentioned it earlier, but th at this point on the Apex tapes, they decide to take a few shots at Radiohead. 
Yeah, in quick succession as well. Like, I think it's two questions back to back. Yeah, they ask them, uh, "Would you really? Would you be interested in, do- in doing like going uh, taking a full blown experimental approach like Radiohead has?" And Murdoch just goes, "I'm not interested in going down any road Radiohead has been down." But much lower, Trevor, is the Marty Feldman comparison. So Marty Feldman, Trevor, have you ever seen the movie Young Frankenstein? Uh, that's one of my few Mel Brooks blank spots, actually. Well, speaking of blind spots, it, it stars an actor named Marty Feldman, whose most notable feature is his giant bulging eye. Okay. So. Oh, that's, that's mean. That's mean. That's punching down. Guys, that's, yeah, for our listeners who aren't, like, uh, very fluent in Radiohead, Tom York has a lazy eye that, like, uh, frequently is the subject of some humor. But, yeah, it's just kind of mean. Especially coming from Russell. Russell. I don't know about that. Phase one Russell was kind of mean. I mean, he beat up 2D in the, in the, in the G-bytes. Okay, so then at this point on the album, Russell and Murdoch really stick it to some guy named Mick Hucknell. Did you, were you able to find out who that is? <laughs> yes, I did, Trevor. Uh, he seems to be kind of a nerdy, white, soul rocker, kind of in the vein of like a Phil Collins figure, uh, who was in a band called Simply Red. Oh, Simply Red. They do, um, right? True. I guess. Probably. Yeah. And, uh, and I don't know. He supported the invasion of Iraq and he's like a center left stooge. So yeah, make fun of that dude. Whatever. Fuck okay. Him. Yeah, sure. But leave Tom York alone. Leave Tom York alone and certainly don't make fun of his eye. That's, that's dumb. Nobody's taking care of Tom York. <laughs> uh, according to 2D, 5-4 is about Lindsay Don McKenzie. Trevor, uh, a famous British adult film star who kind of like would give his dad a boner. He kind of hit, she hit that Jenna Jameson. I'm also a celebrity level. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Yeah. In, uh, in the UK. And then while discussing Clint Eastwood, it, it, junior Dan is referred to as Augustus Pablo's bassist. Now Augustus Pablo kicks ass. Augustus Pablo. Oh, he's one of the greats. One of the greats. If you've never heard the album, uh, King Tubby's meets rockers uptown. It's like, a hugely influential dub album. I think some people even call it like the first real dub album or something yeah, like that. If you're a big fan of the um, sounds that Gorillaz was messing with on the self-titled and you were like, hey, maybe I want to get a little more into dub reggae, Augustus Pablo is definitely one of the first names you should reach for. Yeah, anything by King Tubby and Augustus Pablo and anything where they work together, you're, yeah. you're definitely going to hear those roots of that sound and that stuff. Very influential, innovative member of the reggae scene. Uh, I do. I don't have much else to say about the Apex tapes, Trevor, except for I did laugh that they were forced to talk about the Ed Case refix. Yes. <laughs> how did they? Um, how did they describe that as well? It was pretty pretty funny. Oh, I didn't take any specific notes about that. I just laughed at the idea of them having to pay some lip service to it because it was a hit in the UK. Here's here's how uh, Murdoch described the origin. Um, the Boom Boom Bling Bling Boys were at the studio next door to ours, and they stole some master tapes and some stickers and went to Radio One's stream team. And then Tootie says, uh, no, we got it done for nothing, and you got it on stage and did a live PA high on rum punch. And Murdoch just responds, same thing in my books. But do you think that do you think that the band was like behind the scenes annoyed that they had to write any any lore involving the fucking Ed Case refix oh, I'm, of I'm Eastwood? I'm positive. <laughs> Murdoch name checks Mick Jones, future gorilla. And uh, Russell actually uh, name checks most stuff later on as well. There's a few name checks that, that happen. I believe Dennis Hopper also got mentioned in the Apex tapes at one point, didn't he? Yes, he did. Yeah. Um, they talked about uh, shit. 
When did they mention him? Oh, I don't remember. I think it was uh, oh, it was when Murdoch has to rem- to give an example of what he views as yeah, the, pinnacle the pinnacle of success. success for gorillas. Yeah, I would say that that's that that's spooky that they that they called out all these people who would be future gorillas collaborators. But I guess you would if you name check literally every famous person in the world. Maybe they uh, maybe they used uh, these interview tapes as a point of reference for when they were on the hunt for new collaborators they would go back to the apex tapes and say let's see uh let's see what ones of the names here uh that we said we could probably get to collaborate on the album you think that you think that's how they did it <laughs> maybe so that could be it uh okay i'm gonna i'm gonna take a moment to just talk to you in depth about the rock the house question <laughs> sure yeah okay because in my opinion it's nonsense and i need you to help me understand it okay sure yeah so, Rock the House, uh, the journalist describes as a funky dance thing with another fine rap from Dell. Uh, but then he says it's at odds with their um, Ibiza Super Club Superstar DJ Garage tendency in dance music. So, <laughs> what the fuck? What do you think of the state of club music for the masses? What is that question? First of all, like it took a weird, like how do you end up with what do you think of club music from the no, yeah. from that weird ass? And then 2D says. Well, in the same way that Hazy Fantasy can mutate into Jeremy Healy, taking the Punky Fun song to the dance floor for a beefer and still maintain the size-to-leg ratio, yeah, but you can't <laughs> turn a fat boy into a house mutton, right? And Russell chimes in with, I think we all know what Chuck D had to say about that good old boy. So he's referring to John Wayne. That part I can actually explain to you, but let's back up first. Hazy Fantasy was a British pop band from the 80s. Okay. Jeremy Healy was their front man. Sure. And knowing both of those things does not make 2D's response make sense. Well, he was in a car accident. <laughs> That's a good point. So then, yeah, Murdoch says, what has John Wayne's big leggy got to do with anything? And Russell says, I think we all know what Chuck D had to say about that good old boy. Um, this part I do understand. So in the song Fight the Power, Trevor... Uh, Chuck D has the following famous verse. Elvis was a hero to most, but he never meant shit to me, you see. Straight up racist, that sucker was. Simple and plain. Motherfuck him and John Wayne. Uh, if you doubt Chuck, by the way, here's a line from John Wayne's 1971 Playboy magazine interview, okay? Sure. He said, I believe in white supremacy until the blacks are educated to a point of responsibility. I don't believe in giving authority and positions of leadership and judgment to irresponsible people. Yikes. Motherfuck John Wayne. Fuck that guy. <laughs> wow. Okay. What happened with all those Western dudes? I mean, Clint Eastwood is like a super far-right Republican, right? I know, I know, but that makes Clint Eastwood seem like a fucking, you know, multiculturalist. Yeah, that makes him seem like a kind of grumpy racist uncle, but yeah, that's pretty... For sure. There's some mention of Ian Brown, the lead singer of the Stone Roses, uh, which Russell says he has more monkey in him than Mickey Dolan's, who's in the monkeys, so I understand half of that reference. <laughs> Trevor, what's going on? Was Ca- what was Cass Brown doing when he wrote this shit? <laughs> I really, I really have no idea. Like, there's so much stuff here that just doesn't connect to anything else here. Here's a really good. I like this line. Russell Russell uh, describes the band's how would I the dynamic of the band thusly. Okay, mm-hmm. he says we all love each other except Murdoch, who hates us and himself equally. <laughs> that is the classic soundbite from uh, from this interview. Yeah, I think. And then 2D chimes in with. Oh, I love you, Murdoch. Cute little moment. He kind of growls at him. 
Yeah, I like when 2D calls Biggie Smalls Fatty Smalls and Russell gets upset about it and goes, Fatty Smalls, I keep telling him Biggie Smalls, man, forgive him, he knows not what he says. Even in a car accident, like you said. He's in a car accident. We move into a little one-on-one with each band member. Um, let me let me just grab a couple of, of highlights of those, okay? Uh, Murdoch name checks Lemmy. Rest in peace, Lemmy. Noodle name checks Graham Coxon. And that's interesting. What was the state of Graham Coxon and Damon's relationship in 2001? Do you know offhand, Trevor? They hadn't... Uh, Graham didn't split with uh, Blur until Think Tank, which I believe was 2003. So they were still on good terms here. So a nice little shout-out to his buddy. Who's, uh, who's one-on-one uh, interview questions do you like best? Who do you think uh, did the strongest segment here? My favorite was probably actually Noodles, because I like the interplay between her and Russell a lot. That's exactly what I was going to say. Even yeah. though Haruka Kuroda's vocal performance is like very shrill and tough to get through, it's, you don't hear these two paired off enough, and I like the fact, I like the kind of warmth between them. Well, they, they also are very, uh, they're, they're, you say you don't see that dynamic a lot, but they're very closely uh, tied together, I think, on the um, on We Are The Dirty, too. They do a lot of interplay back and they're forth. They're kind of the stars of We Are The Dirty, they really, in my opinion. They carried the thrust of the conversation, for sure, which I was kind of surprised by. The only other thing I want to say about Apex Taste before we move on, Trevor, is that they this was in a snapshot in time in which 5-4 was still supposed to be the second Gorilla single. Yeah, that's like one of the last tracks on here, them promoting 5-4 as one of the singles. Oh, you're listening to our lovely single called 5-4. <laughs> this, is, this was the part of, like, um, I could see why they saved this for last, because this is where I was really worn down by these. And yet, and yet, Trevor, I guarantee you that these last few tracks were played more on the radio than any of the rest of the stuff. Tape. I'm positive, yeah. Because they would have used them to bump the single. They wouldn't have bothered to edit a stupid interview skit together with these dumb questions. <laughs> no, but you should. It's only, look, look, it's only 20 minutes long. So if you haven't listened to Apex Tape, you owe it to yourself at just in terms of hearing a starting point of Gorilla's lore and like them figuring these characters out. I think it's worth that as a document. Yeah, you'll definitely have a good time. But yeah, fun stuff here. Not as fun as We Are the Dury, I don't think. We Are the Dury is fucking great. We Are the Dury is probably my single favorite piece of Gorilla's lore. So I found myself, I don't know if you had this experience, Trevor. I found myself forgetting to take notes a lot during this just because I was like genuinely engrossed by what I was hearing. And like, yeah. I had to keep I had to keep jumping back. And you know what? I I actually I was such a fucking gorilla's nerd as a teenager. I listened to this so many times, like a lot of it didn't even seem new to me. Oh, sure. It'd been a while for me. I think I'd probably listened to it when it came out and, and hadn't listened since. There were definitely some different things I noticed about it than uh, I noticed about it back when I was a kid. But yeah, a lot of it was very familiar. Let's talk about the voice cast. So Remy Kabaka sounds perfect now. He sounds exactly like you want Russell to sound. Everybody sounds perfect. And one of my favorite things is they all sound like cartoons. Agreed. And I know that Remy is not a professional voice actor, but boy, I, I think it would be a real mistake to recast him for the show. I think his Russell voice is really good. Kuroda has a lot more to do now that Noodle speaks English. The accent is still a little bit dicey because it's not her accent. And, and to be honest, it sounds at times like she's slipping out of it. Yeah, I, I also noticed that at times too. But still, I think she does a really good job. In the first half of the album, Trevor, I don't know if you noticed this, but it seemed like the 
they caught her on a bad voice day, and she really has she struggles a lot early on to stay in Noodle's register. There are a few answers where she sounds like a forty five year old woman trying to sound like a fourteen year old woman. But then on the on the back half of it, she really finds the groove, and you're like, oh yeah, this is Noodle. This is what Noodle sounds like. I think the interplay between the band even gets better as uh like everybody kind of ramps it up as the interview goes on. The only change between Apex. Uh, Murdoch and Dury Murdoch, Trevor, is that Phil Cornwell found that new kind of Dudley Moore drunk stuttering affectation, where uh, I, 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 which he, he's would like, almost like <laughs> go on to become too much in Phase Three, I think. <laughs> yeah, I like agree. he was stuttering almost <laughs> as half as much as he was talking. But it's very charming uh, on this one. Yeah, it's um, a very old British rock star kind of aesthetic too. We almost can go track by track through this, Trevor. I mean, like you know, obviously we don't have to talk about each track for very long. Wouldn't that be meta as hell? Us doing a track by track review of the band, doing a track by track review of one of their albums. I think it's going to happen because I have little notes interspersed throughout here. But can we just talk about like this is such a special release for me because this is my favorite album of all time and to have this little like recording of one of i think the most interesting bands uh in recent memory if only because you know they're they're characters one of the most interesting bands oh yeah in recent member memory talking about my favorite album of all time in depth that's just like this was made specifically for me I wish I had something like this for every album that I liked. Exactly. Imagine if there was an equivalent recording of like the Beatles talking about Sgt. Pepper. Exactly. Or... It would be like, like I would be, I would settle for a very strong "We Are the Dory" kind of equivalent for every phase. I'm. I know we got oh, yeah. Rock's Pirate Radio in um, Phase Three, and that was that was pretty cool. I think it could have been a little better with like. Um, I would have loved to gotten a little more 2D and Noodle in that one. I know Russell wasn't canonically available, but I'm sure they could have worked him in somehow. And we will be covering Burnox Pirate Radio later in the season, by the way. And I wish it was a little more about the music and not so lore driven, because this has tons of lore in it. But they mainly get it out of the way first, and then you you're just left and, with this and really drop nice in kind little of little bits here and there. Drop in little bits. Yeah. But then you're, for the most part, you're really just left with this kind of deep dive into uh, Demon Days, not only in how it was made by the characters, but them talking about the music as well, which is just really interesting all the way through. Uh, let's let's talk about uh, the beginning, though, because we kind of get this, um, what's been going on with the band since the self-titled came out, and they went away after kind of Gorillaz blew up. Oh, yeah. Can I throw this out? Well, my first note on We Are The Dury is, Gorillaz lived in the Hollywood Hills. That's where Trevor is. I did, that's Yeah, we, we were neighbors for a little. Well, we would have been if I was uh, here back then. But yeah, that's that's fun to think about them kind of uh, showing up to Playboy parties and uh, Murdoch getting kicked out of the mansion for stealing ashtrays. That's a very good bit. There's a lot of focus on the failed Gorillaz movie, um, Celebrity Harvest. It's essentially used to explain where they went in between the self-titled and demon days right and noodle i think describes uh celebrity Har- harvest as it was going to be like a kind of series of non sequiturs of the band just going in and out of these kind of surreal situations much like um i guess a movie the monkeys did called head yeah head head which is a really which is a weird ass movie that i believe jack nicholson helped finance maybe maybe we'll watch that and review it sometime for the podcast the the two big pieces of lore that are brought up here first and will be referenced throughout we are the jury is that uh murdoch found himself in a mexican prison right um which we saw a little vignette last week on uh, on 
slow boat to Hades, we see a little ident of him in that prison. Mm-hmm. And then Russell had some kind of a mental and spiritual breakdown. And wind, wound up living in the basement of someone who may or may not have been Ike Turner? Yeah, that's very interesting. Does that mean that who plays on, canonically, does the guy playing piano on every planet where he reaches dead, is he ambiguously maybe not Ike Turner? I think that is for sure <laughs> Ike Turner. I don't know if the guy he stayed with was Ike Turner. So I can see Russell in the studio trying to talk to the real Ike Turner about these days he's <laughs> in his basement, and Ike Turner just kind of having to politely be like, oh yeah, and just not knowing really what's going on the entire time. Nelson DeFrida still has a little bit of a marble mouth, I'm just going to say it. I think he's great here. I think he's totally on point. I think every now and then he just has elocution issues. I, it's not surprising to me that he's the gorilla that was recast in advance of the TV series. I don't know, man. I think he's really good here. I do think, though, um, who's the new guy? Kevin. We really should know this. I feel bad every time we don't know his name because he is doing a really good job as 2D, and he's established some like really strong chemistry with Phil Cornwall very quickly, so props to him. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. That is true. As much as I think Nelson DeFridis is still the definitive 2D for me, I have no problem with this new guy whatsoever. I think he's doing great, and I'm happy to have him as 2D. Can we move into some Kong Studio stuff here? Sure, yeah, because we get a, we get a lot of Kong Studios talk. Yeah, let's go through it. So it was established in 1999 as Kong Studios when they moved in. Uh, it was built on a plague cemetery. <laughs> My favorite, maybe the biggest laugh I had on the whole album, uh, whatever you want to call this, the whole tape, was when Murdoch was talking about how back in plague times you'd just be dumped into a mass grave, and then 2D says, poor people, and then Murdoch says, yeah, poor people. It's like the the disconnect between, he didn't understand that 2D was saying, I feel sad for those people. He's like, yeah, yeah, the poor people. Yeah. They got dumped in the hole. <laughs> I like when he talks about having uh, zombies stuffed up the chimney flues. And uh, 2D's like, we have chimney flues. And Murdoch goes on this long explanation of how zombies and chimney flues is a metaphor for things that were like strife that was blocking up their creative channels. And 2D's like, oh. And he goes, no, we actually do have a bunch of zombies stuck up the chimney flues. <laughs> yeah. And then uh, in addition to that, at one point it was owned by a biker gang called the Nomads who all burned alive in it. Uh <laughs> Russell keeps referencing, by the way, that he's he's had some mental problems. Right. I don't know exactly how that went down, Trevor, but he seems to be in a a spiritually and emotionally confused place right now. Well, I believe the um, the impetus for his mental problems was the uh, exorcism of Dell from his body, right? Yes, because it's established that they were high school buddies. Right. Dell died, and then possessed him for a while yeah and some point after the self-titled came out uh he was exercised and that kind of drove uh russell into some kind of hyper depressive manic episode or something like that which yeah like splintered his consciousness or something wound up with him in quote ike turner's basement but who among us has not at one point been in quote ike turner's basement <laughs> it's true yeah in the weed so to speak <laughs> yeah then they talk then they do a very straight-faced almost out of character commercial for gorillas.com where they're like trading off sound bites like you can play games and visit the different band member rooms and there's almost no in character writing at all <laughs> Well, hey, I mean, with the amount of work that Jamie had put into this website, I can see why he'd, he'd be interested in, like, you know, actually selling it. Yeah, he just, like, cast no funny business. Tell them yeah, to go just, to the just website. Tell them how good the website is, please. Just cut it with the deep references for a second. Don't compare the website to, like, any actors from the 60s. Just tell them to go. It's a lot of fun, I promise. I worked so hard on this, dude. And then Danger Mouse is, uh, is mentioned to have discovered the Kong Studios Underground. I always like when they... 
I like when they weave collaborators into the lore. Me too. That's great. And I like when they have them playing especially important roles in the lore like that too. Yeah. Like I can just see like Danger Mouse pulling down some kind of wall and finding his way into a new area of the uh, studio. They ask about the recording of Demon Day. So this is where we get the, the official statement. Russell says, this was Noodle's vision. Right. Noodle recorded a lot of it. She laid the, the groundwork a lot of it by herself. Murdoch says that he uh, left some demos for her, but 2D clarifies that those were just tapes of him humming. Yeah, it sounds like those were largely just discarded. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Murdoch was still in jail when Noodle wrote most of the album, apparently. Well, none of them had made it. Uh, none of them had made it back to Kong Studios yet, right? I think they say that Two D is the first one who shows up again, and he starts laying down some vocals. I believe that's the timeline. Yes, and then Russell at one point, Trevor claims that Danger Mouse had made a bunch of money on the Gray album. Uh, that's not how I know that story. In fact, I, I was unable to do much research because of how crazy my life has been. But the apocryphal story, Trevor, I don't know if you remember, is that uh, Danger Mouse was being sued by EMI for for unlicensed use of the Beatles on the Grey album. Of course. And then when Damon hired him to produce Demon Days, they had to drop their lawsuit and hire him. Huh. Interesting. That's how I always heard that story. Worked out pretty well for him, right? Can you imagine just putting an underground mixtape together of, like, just a Beatles and Jay-Z mashup thing and, like, just the dude from Blur picking you up because of it? I know. What a different time. Like, like Damon was really that impressed by the Grey album? Because I remember listening to it and thinking, like, oh, this is cute. Well, the mashup album was still very new. It was still very new. I Was it? Yeah, it was. The, I mean, certainly in that context of pitting one artist against another, that was, that was a different take on that format. I guess. But, I, you know, I wonder if maybe they had met at some social or professional functions and felt that they had good chemistry or something like that. Possibly. Who knows? Yeah. My favorite... My favorite moment on this though is when murdoch mentions that uh danger mouse looks like david blaine with a wig on i think that's actually kind of accurate <laughs> and then at one point russell confirms that it is 2005 when he says some of the later collaborations were delivered via digital phone lines from around the world <laughs> wow Gorillas has always been at the cutting edge of technology. I mean, I remember when they were uh, doing some promo for Internet Explorer in 2010. Microsoft add them to the pile. So then we kind of get into a classic Hallelujah Monkeys style track by track uh, dissertation on every one of the songs on Demon Days, which honestly, like I fucking live for this shit. What a joy. What a joy to listen to. I mean, we won't we won't go in painstaking detail of everything they said, but but let's certainly throw out some interesting bits as we get to them, huh? Sure. Yeah. I mean, what, where do you want to start? On Last Living Souls, Russell refers to it as a harmonious battle between digital and acoustic, which I really like. Definitely, yeah, that checks out. And then Murdoch says that if you listen close, you can hear some old geezer coughing in the background. Did you go back to Last Living Souls and crank the volume, listen on headphones, see if you could pick that out? No. Me no, yeah. I didn't. But hey, if you did, and uh, you can confirm or deny that, tweet at us. Yeah, level boost it and send it to us, and then we'll, yeah. post, it. we'll post it everywhere. We'll play it on the next episode. They throw out a, a couple cool more descriptors uh, about some of the early tracks, too. Like, they say, um, uh, Kids with Guns sounds like nighttime maneuvers, which I think that's a pretty good, accurate description. They describe O Green World as a march of the madman. Yeah, I like that, too. And also, in O Green World... Uh, there's here's some fun lore. So apparently, if you listen carefully in the background, you can hear ghostly growling and whispering in the background of O Green World. Now, doesn't that? I didn't have a chance to Google this, Trevor, but doesn't that have a name when you when a ghost makes an appearance on an audio recording that has some yes. kind of a, a what that is phenomenon that has a name? 
Uh, that's called um, electronic voice phenomena, or EVP, I believe. EVP, that's yeah. right. Yeah, and I, that's so much fun to think that because Hong Kong Studios is like such a fucked up haunted place that of course there'd be some some ghostly apparitions on any album that you make there. Yeah, and I mean, if, if that's going to show up on a song on Demon Days, it's, oh, Green World is definitely going to be the one. And I like when Murdoch says, ask not for whom the bell toll, it tolls for thee. And 2D says, that sounds like my alarm clock. <laughs> They're silly guys. They're silly good guys, Trevor. There's a, but there, like the interplay between the band here is so much fun and so much more. It feels so much more kinetic than it did on uh, Apex. Oh, 20. agreed. Yeah, they feel like an organism that works together. You know. Yeah, like like it's not quite like um. You can tell it's not. It's clearly scripted, but just the the voice actors are playing off each other so well. It's just really great to listen to. Then we find out, at least in in lore, that it was a uh, Danger Mouse's idea to add the children's choir to Dirty Harry. That was a that was a Danger Mouse move, according to the band. And Two uh, D threw on some keyboards that he heard on Sesame Street. Yes, and uh, and much ado is made about Russell's uh, drumming on this track and how cut up it is. There's actually a really great video, Trevor. I think I've sent it to you before. I'll post it on the on the Twitter. It only has like 300 views. It's like a behind the stage view of Gabe, the live. Uh, drummer of gorillas like shredding at a at a plastic beach tour date uh, on Dirty Harry and it's a fucking it is a, a madcap drumming performance for sure. Well, well much ado is made about Russell's uh, drumming in general on this interview tape in one of my favorite segments of the entire the entire listen there's this like towards the end when they're talking about possible live dates just all of the band members kind of start circle jerking about russell's live drumming abilities yeah it's like the only thing that everybody agreed with on the it's, album is that russell's a great drummer such, it's such a good joke about the fact about you know the lack of live drums in gorilla's studio recordings <laughs> right. i just i like yeah russell's such a great drummer he's the best live drummer in the world yeah he's really good russell he's such a good drummer and then, he, and then, and then remy just goes thanks very good Okay, so uh, we find out on Feel Good Inc. that Posdenuis uh, owes Murdoch five pounds. I wonder if he ever settled up. That's important to know. And apparently they were huffing nitrous oxide before doing their rap. I like that, too. Yeah. What, about the, what about the multiple mentions about megaphone effect on 2D's voice, meaning that it's like a memory or a message from the past? See, that's never how I interpreted it, but I mean, that's definitely an interesting way to look at it. Well, especially in the wake of humans, where that that effect is used, pretty much exclusively used, on all of 2D's vocals. This actually brings up something that I wanted to discuss, in that I think the band here almost has a tendency to misinterpret Damon's and to an extent their own music, which I think is kind of funny. Like, a lot mm-hmm. of the stuff they were saying about these tracks doesn't really line up to the way I've seen them. And I know that's kind of establishing my interpretation as being the definitive one, which, like, you know, clearly doesn't. But stuff that they're saying here just doesn't really connect with me. Like, at one point, Russell says Dare is about camaraderie and about how even when things look dark, there are these high moments, which is just something I've never gotten from Dare. No, me either. Me either. It almost seems like there's, like, an in-universe read of the album and an out-of-universe read of the album. Right. And, like, again, when they talk about fire coming out of the monkey's head, Noodle basically goes, like, oh, yeah, you know, it's the happy people's fault, too, for not fighting back. Like, (laughs) really weird. What the fuck? Just these colonialized people who are victims of imperialism. Yeah, you know, if if they'd done a little bit more to fight back, they probably could have saved the world. Russell refers to El Manana as a digital soul song. I thought that that was a nice soundbite. 
I really like uh, Noodle's comparison to the opening kind of sirens and keyboards is waking up in a sensory deprivation tank. That that immediately had me going back and listening to that song. I like uh, Murdoch does call Courtney Love a bloke at one point, which we know for a fact that he knows what she's got going on down there. Right. As we saw in the MTV Cribs episode, yeah. He's had her. He wishes he hadn't, but he has had her. Is this also where we get uh, Christina Aguilera referred to as a dude? Yeah, yeah, I think it is. I think it is. So Gorilla Sullivan kind of bucked that transphobic humor, which is, you know, disappointing, but... Not surprising. You know what's interesting about the November Has Come uh, breakdown, Trevor? Is that the band just reads MF Doom's Wikipedia page. <laughs> and Murdoch mentions that he was listening to Mad Villain when he crashed his uh, moped or something. That's like the one bone throw of in-character writing, but otherwise they're like, MF Doom is a rapper. He used to be called Dev Love X. He used to, he's released some album as MM Food. Uh, the MF stands for Metal Face, and Doom refers to Dr. Doom from the Fantastic. Like, they're just. <laughs> he's got a long history people should know about. What I like more is uh, Russell just straight up reading Booty Brown's lyrics from Dirty Harry. He's like very serious and straight faced. Like, um, I'm the reason you can fill up your Azusa. Right, which isn't the lyric. No. <laughs> That's the reason why you fill up your But whatever, yeah. Russell. Um, okay. This is a, my favorite piece of writing on this whole thing, Trevor. Have you ever had to write something that wasn't very interesting and you're finding a way to keep it fresh for yourself? Totally. This is what Cass Brown had to do when he was writing the interviewer's questions for these track-by-track track prompts, because he basically just has to rewrite, the next song is this, why don't you say something about it, over and over again? Right. So all alone, all alone, ten songs into this track-by-track uh, track breakdown, he wrote, all alone follows track ten on the new Gorillaz CD, Demon Days. <laughs> <laughs> That's the writing of a man who was very bored. Very, very bored. Obviously very tired of this project by this point. Yeah, definitely. But they do talk about Roots Manuva and how they had like this long relationship with him leading up to Demon Days. I wonder how much that's rooted in, in truth. And they call him, uh, they say he's at the forefront of UK hip-hop. Yeah, and uh, and I'm really looking forward to, to digging into Roots' solo stuff, because I, I gotta say, I'm I, that's a big blind spot for me in, in Gorilla's collaborator material. The album that I believe he put out uh, recently before Demon Days was... Um, I think it was Run, Come, Save Me. Very good record. I'm excited to talk about that with you, too. I think it's always, you know, featured on, like, best British rap album lists or whatever. So I'm very excited to listen I think to it. Won it. A Mer- I think it won the Mercury Prize. It may have. You may be right about that. That sounds familiar. Okay, this might be the actual most substantial breakdown of any song on We Are The Dury, which is their very lore-intensive description of White Light. Right, yeah. Do you think... Okay, do you think this is real, or do you think the band is, in-universe, doing a bit here? I think that this is all legit lore. Yeah? You, you don't think that... I take all of this. You think White Light does not canonically have 2D vocals on it? I think canonically, so let's break down what they say, okay? Sure, okay. So the guitar on White Light supposedly is being played by one of the inmates who Murdoch was in jail with, uh, and in order to help Murdoch escape, he, he, his payment was that he demanded to be featured on the new Gorillaz album. That's kind of a recurring joke throughout uh, We Are the Dury, that um, Murdoch escaped from the jail in Mexico with help from some of the other inmates. And now he, as Russell puts it, now he owes them. And they 
pop up a couple more times uh, in the conversation, including uh, at the end when they actually call Murdoch on his cell phone. Yeah, and it sounds like a British man trying to sound like a Mexican dude. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I do like, though, that after Murdoch tells him he has to go, the, guy, uh, the Mexican man goes, have a nice day. This is the, the scrutiny moment where I think you're in Camp A and I'm in Camp B, but they, they kind of end this with a bit of a punchline where 2D says, yeah, and that, well, they're talking about the theme of the track being about the relentlessness of alcoholism. Right. And they kind of end with this bit where 2D was like, yeah, the vocals were just delivered by this drunk tramp who we, who we found on the street. And then Murdoch says, who you calling a drunk tramp? So right. punchline there is that Murdoch was the drunk person doing those vocals. The question is, are we to take this as gospel? Yeah. So that is this, this is a Murdoch vocal track. Is White Light a gorilla song, or is it uh, Murdoch featuring Mexican inmates? Plus a choral arrangement that I'm sure Noodle did. Yes. Yeah. 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 Uh, I like. I like to think. I like to think that that's that's official. I like that. It's it's a cute little detail. Yeah. I just. I don't know. It also seems like the band could be doing a bit here, especially with Murdoch jumping in and going like, "Who are you calling a drunk tramp?" Like that's something he would say to kind of like you know. As a joke. But it also almost goes a little ways to explaining why White Light is there and why it's so different than everything else, you know? Right, it kind of, uh, kind of explains its existence in the first place. You mentioned uh, the dare thing. I, I do like that, uh, that Russell calls it part Clash, part Madonna, but, but Murdoch doesn't like that description. He says it doesn't sound anything like Madonna, right? He says that, yeah, it's got nothing to do with Madonna, and then they rehash the it's their dare story, which I think I've gone on the record. I think that story is bullshit. Yeah, see, that's, that's, that's what I'm saying. They clearly are doing bits about their own music here. I think in-universe, that is the story. Right, okay, yeah. This is probably the origin point for the... For that story too, right? I think so. This predates any of this of the single pre-release run-up to Dare, so that one would of, make one sense. Of, one of the great persistent questions in the Gorillas canon, I think, was it supposed to be? It's there. Yeah, I'd be shocked. I'd be shocked. I really don't think so either. But you know what? Who knows? Who knows? Anything can happen with Sean Ryder. Rest in peace, Dennis Hopper. Uh, Noodle met him at an award ceremony, and apparently he was already a Gorillaz fan. That made me, that's cute. I like that. And uh, he was going to buy Murdoch's Winnebago, and he only ended up doing the collaboration so Murdoch would knock a few dollars off the price. Yeah, I wonder if, did he did he buy it? I wonder if, uh, if and also, now that he's dead, did that pass on to his next of kin? Where's Murdoch's Winnebago? Find Murdoch's Winnebago. That's, oh, yeah, that needs to come back, right? <laughs> Phase four. That's what everybody wants. I do like that that Russell does have something very insightful to say, which is that like popular culture views Dennis Hopper as a symbol of like excess and and drug use and stuff, but in reality he's like this very spiritual inward looking man, you know? Just kind of like how um people view Sean Ryder as like um it's kind of tough guy mank, but according to <laughs> according to Murdoch, he's really just a big pussycat. Yeah, he's like a posh high English. Yeah, do I have time to lay down some of my singing before we retire to the drawing room? Marvelous, super. I totally accept that as as Gorilla's Canon. That's true. In Definitely. Gorilla's Canon, Sean Ryder is putting the whole thing on. They barely say anything about Don't Get Lost in Heaven. They call it a transition over and over and over, and then Murdoch goes. Uh, Get on with it! I got a plane to catch. Yeah, he gets very bored here, and throughout he's kind of annoyed whenever they start waxing p- political or philosophical. It's kind of his ongoing bit that, that he's actually not- ca- that kind of annoys me. Actually, I mean, like it, it's never fun uh, for uh, the artist to not be feeling it as much as you want them to be. And here it's just kind of almost lame that they kind of wrote that into the interview. I get why it's played for laughs, but yeah, I'd, I'd rather hear him be doing something else here. And then in, De- in Demon Days, Trevor, do you remember back in our fall review how you mentioned that one of the 
character traits of of 2D is his sort of secret Zen master ability to like pull something deep out of nowhere in spite of his limited intellectual ability yes and i mentioned that specifically because of the little uh monologue he gives here talking about uh what demon days the song means to him like this was i think it's really beautiful it's really nice i've heard people say that this has really touched them like deep down i thought that in spite of it being kind of maybe set up for a little bit uh a punchline that murdoch says afterwards i actually think that this is some really lovely writing about I don't know, the nature of, of creative endeavor and uh, what people are trying to do when they are creating things. Why we make things, yeah. In fact, you know what? I kind of just want to drop it in here and let you, because I think Nelson does a really good job with the delivery on this, too. I'm just going to drop it in here. I'm not going to yeah, play Murdoch's little joke. Let's, let's play a clip from that, yeah. You remember when you were a little kid and you would look at the clouds in the sky as the sunlight bounced off them? And... Something that simple will make you feel a part of everything and all alone at the same time. And that feeling's not something you can ever put into words. So you spend your whole life chasing it. Making music, taking pictures, painting, whatever. In the hope that other people will understand that sense or feeling. As creative entities, we look for signs of life outside ourselves. For a connection to alleviate the sense of solitude that's why we all do what we do whether we know of ourselves or not i can definitely see why why that speaks to a lot of gorillas fans and you know a lot of gorillas fans are very creative people yeah it's just a yeah really really touching just really sincere work from Cass brown here and also also some really good insight i i'd never quite thought of it this way where russell frames demon days as really the flip side of last living souls last living souls you start the album out very alone and then in, in Demon Days, you're suddenly a part of everything again. Swept up by this big choir, yeah. I really like that. And I really like um, Russell's uh, discussion of how Demon Days is a progression of the uh, self-titled sound. 2D says it's like um, somebody's taken the first album and colored it in. But Russell actually, uh, in typical Halloween Monkeys fashion, throws out three adjectives to describe the transition. He says uh, it can all be summed up by saying that Demon Days is richer, denser, and darker, which all checks out. But yeah, after after they go through the album track by track, they we're still up with another like fifteen minutes maybe of them just answering general questions and a lot of fun stuff come up comes up here. We get this little kind of monologue from Noodle where I believe she sums up perfectly what the Gorillas project is kind of all about, why so many people are drawn to it. And again, it's just like uh, it's kind of like two D's uh, Demon Days monologue where it's just very sincere. And I'd like to um, drop a bit of that in here, if you don't mind. Uh, oh yeah, sure, go for it. For many groups and artists, there is a desire to add to a, a tradition or, or a history of music rather than stand apart from it or, or advance it. They seem happy just to be in a band. For them, that is enough. The other extremes are artists who are willing to push boundaries, but at the expense of their audience, a desire to seem above your listeners or alienate your audience in order to feel above them. I think we represent ourselves in a very non-traditional way with consideration and forethought, but without pushing people away. So yeah, that's just such a great description of what makes Gorillaz, I believe, such a special thing to so many people and why it attracts the kind of fans it does. It's very astute. It's a balance between unlike anything you've ever heard and yet accessible and familiar in a way. And the great thing about this band is that it's immediately followed by a story about Murdoch putting his dick in a hot dog bun and tricking Alanis Morissette into giving him a hand job. 
<laughs> this goes on for a really long time. Murdoch puts his his penis into a hot dog bun and puts ketchup on it and lays it on a plate. He offers it to Alanis Morissette, who tugs at it a few times until she figures out the score. And then, here's my favorite part, Trevor, because Murdoch says, I've done this thousands of times, and usually this is where I get kicked out. But then everybody started laughing and clapping, which I love because it means that Trevor, the one group as disgusting and moralless and fucked up as, uh, as Murdoch Nichols is the Hollywood elite. <laughs> I mean, I'm not going to say you're wrong. But hey, he says even Alanis had to give it an old smile. They're a, a, a bankrupt group of demons. Yeah. <laughs> yes. I think 2D closes this brilliantly, where the, the interviewer is supposed to ask, have you finally learned anything from your experience? And then 2D has a few false starts where he goes, I think that, no, no, wait. Uh, in the end of the, no, that's not it. And then he finally just goes, Actually, I don't think I've learned anything. And that is a lesson in itself. <laughs> and that's We Are the Dury. That's We Are the Dury. Okay, Trevor, that concludes our review, step-by-step, play-by-play of the Gorillas interview CDs. We're now back, full disclosure, we're not back to the future or the present or I guess the recent past, technically, since this releases the day after we record it it's all very confusing days of future past yeah it's the days of future past you know the second best x-men movie is that no what is well x2 is the first one and then i would say first class is the second one which is kind of backwards right isn't that funny it is a little bit first second is number one first class is that's very that's very cute very good uh, I hope you enjoyed the episode, guys. Uh, I'm sorry we had to do this kind of weird, staggering uh, recording and release. Hopefully we'll be right back on schedule now. I just want to give you a chance to, to catch up with us. You can find us on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram and Tumblr. And uh, now, of course, we have a Patreon. Thank you so much to the patrons who have uh, stepped up to donate to help uh, pay for our server costs. That's so cool of you guys. We really appreciate it. We'll definitely do something cool down the line to kind of kind of give a shout out to anyone who's chipped in a few bucks. Yeah, a little bit of content, maybe. A little content, bit. generate a little content for you. Uh, so what are we doing next week? Next week, we're going to take a look at the first half of Rise of the Ogre, I believe. Is that the we schedule next? Yes, I'm very excited about that. Rise, of the, Ogre a, is a, Rise of the Ogre is a good read. Do your best to track down a, a friend who owns a copy or maybe maybe a little bit of, of sneaky digital shit if you want to follow along. But we'll do our best for people who've never read the book, I think, to, to, to tackle it with enough context for you to be able to follow along. I mean, I would say after our album reviews, you don't even really need to listen to the music. <laughs> you can just be like, oh, yeah, I know. I know that that's that band that sounds like that one dude who wheezes when he laughs and... <laughs> Uh, Trevor, until next time, this is a, this is a revision of an earlier one, okay? Okay, yep. But I'm just going to throw it out because I think it's quick and it's simple and it, maybe we can just settle on it, okay? Uh, I'm not, I, since this is a revision of the other one, I'm not even going to make this your third strike. Okay, okay, here we go. Let okay. me just, until next time, my name is Dylan Flynn. My name's Trevor Ickrath. Get through the week! Is that, is that a lyric? Yes, of course. That's exactly, that's even the cadence that Bobby Womack delivers it in Stylo. Yeah, through the week. Oh, yeah, you're right. I, I don't like it, though. I still don't oh, like it. You bastard. I still don't like it. It's a gay yeah, through the week. Yeah, I, I don't so, really like but it. But we'll be back in a week. It's so perfect, Trevor. I still oh. like Don't Get Lost in Heaven. I hate Don't Get Lost in really? Heaven. The song's this has great, been though. Hallelujah Monkeys. Till then. Like, we'll see you next week. Till then. Don't Get Lost in Heaven. Demo. <laughs>
Well, hopefully we'll have something next week. We'll figure it out, you guys, or we never will, and this will just be the weird ellipses ending to every episode we ever do. Yeah, but we'll uh, talk to you next week. Till then, don't get lost in heaven. Uh, get through the week. This features a rap supplied by London-born rapper MF Doom. MF Doom has rapped under several different identities. He started out as Zev Love, the mastermind of KMD. He's also released a couple of albums as MM Food, but he appears on his track as MF Doom. MF stands for Metal Face, and the Doom bit is uh, in part a tribute to the Marvel Comics supervillain Doctor Doom, the Iron Enemy of the Fantastic Four. Doom recently hooked up with a producer Madlib for the excellent 2004 Mad Villainy album. 